Digital. Student-centred. Creative. Innovation. Imagination. Initiative. Stories that matter. I'm Chia Dachi, and this is Tales of Teaching Online, brought to you by Deakin Learning Futures. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tales of Teaching Online. I am Chia Dachi, and I'm really excited to be talking to one of the very well-known leading scholars in higher education research, Professor Philip Dawson. Phil is a professor and the Associate Director of the Centre for Research in Assessment and Digital Learning, Cradle, at Deakin University. And he leads Cradle's research into academic integrity and security of online assessments. His most recent books include Defending Assessment Security in a Digital World, which just came out this year, and the co-edited volume, along with other Cradle researchers, called Reimagining University Assessment in a Digital World that came out last year. So hello, Phil, and great to have you here. Hello, Chi. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for coming in to talk with us. Um, I wanted to start with your story. You've worked on higher education research for some time now, especially around the issues to do with assessment and feedback. Could we start by you talking to us about uh, who you are and give us a sense of who Phil Dawson is as a researcher, scholar and person? Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, I work in Cradle and I'm really interested in assessment and taking that really, really broadly. Um, so sort of any time anyone makes a judgment about what someone's capable of, that's that's where I, I want to be. And, you know, feedback fits in there as well. So I've been working around that at Cradle since 2015 and prior to that, some other universities, uh, including a stint at Deakin Warrnambool. We've, yeah, in, in Cradle, we've really been working on feedback in a, some really exciting ways mm. with a real focus on sort of what students do with feedback and that's where a lot of my work sits. I also do a lot of work on what I'm calling assessment security and I reckon we'll probably go into that a, a bit later but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how can we know that someone's done the work themselves uh, in the sort of circumstances that we'd like them to do it in. So that's sort of the, the academic self of, of me. So today, I think we'll be talking a lot about your new book and congratulations on your new book, The Defending Assessment Security in the Digital World, Preventing E-Cheating and Supporting Academic Integrity in Higher Education. Talking about the timelessness of your contribution to the field when, especially last year, many were transitioning to teaching uh, and doing assessment online. And I really enjoyed it. And your book very much challenged me to think further about the roles that especially technology, I think, plays in a variety of areas to do with assessment these days. And so before getting started with those questions about your book and assessment security in particular, would you like to give us an elevated pitch on what your book is really about? Yeah, sure. Um, So the book is about it's really a book about cheating. Mm. Um, it's about what can we do about cheating in this world where we can't 
see students. We're not with them so much in, in online learning. And they have access to a range of different sort of cheating services, cheating products, etc. And on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, technology vendors trying to sell us a solution to that. How can we sort of try and, and navigate all of that? Uh, it's also a book that, you know, I've, I've used the word cheating a few times there, and the field of academic integrity can sometimes be a bit uneasy about uh, focus on cheating, which is the, the mm -hmm. bad thing. There, there's often quite a focus on sort of positive academic integrity, which is very, very important, and I think quite a complementary thing to the, the focus of the book. But sadly, we can't just focus on the, the positive we are required, you know, in Australia, we're required by law to focus on the, the negative, the, the cheating part as well. So it's, it's how are we going to balance those two things together? Great. So that's a great segue to my next question then. Can you unpack the meaning of assessment security for us? So in your book, and you just mentioned that assessment security is a complementary argument for academic integrity, you write, Academic integrity is like stopping a bank robbery by addressing the social determinants of crime. Assessment security, on the other hand, is about guards and bolts. So what is assessment security and why do we need to care about that now? Yeah, so with, with assessment security, is the, it is the focus on the negative, the, the punitive or the adversarial sort of side of things where academic integrity has really tried to position itself as, as positive about changing the predictors of cheating. Um, so assessment security is that sort of hard-nosed attempt to stop cheating, to deter cheating, to detect it, to see if it's happened. Um, and it's, it's not easy. And it's something that mm -hmm. we, we need to get better at in our research studies that we've done at Deakin, you know, we found that people could get better at detecting cheating, for instance, but perfection's usually unattainable. So, yeah, assessment security is the, the negative, the adversarial, the, the punitive, the detecting counterbalance to the positive mission of academic integrity. Mm. And that makes sense to me. And you talk about two key features of assessment security. One is about authentication and the other one is about control of circumstances. I wondered if you want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So authentication is really about knowing that the student is who they say they are and that who they're claiming has done the work is the person who has done the work. And it could be quite quite hard to know in online learning if that's taken place so often when we have students in class we build up this rapport this relationship with them we see a lot of samples of their work and we might even see them do some of the work say if it's in a face-to-face -face invigilated exam so we have you know reasonable authentication there have been some blunders you know we we used to trust students bringing a photograph of somebody into the room and saying, I look like the person in the photograph. We used to think that was a good idea, but then we, we realised it's not too hard to forge the photograph um, and have someone else come in. But, yeah, online that gets harder, but 
some of the work that's done in, say, remote proctored exams is around invigilation, trying to tell using facial recognition if the person is who they say they are. Uh, but also some of the work in, say, stylometrics type products, so Turnitin's authorship product and other products in that space that try and understand if a piece of a student's work looks like it's written by the same person that wrote the previous bit's work. So that, that's authentication. Control of circumstances is how do we know that the conditions that we set on a piece of assessment are being upheld? Because if they're not, then the assessment's no longer valid. So if I set a closed book task and a student turns that into an open book task by bringing in some notes, it's no longer valid. Because if I set the closed book task, that must have been important to me, the assessor. Say it was really important that students have some of those lower level outcomes met around memorization. Well, if they bring in their notes, it's not a valid way to assess that anymore. So control of circumstances in this case is how do we ensure that they don't have access to those notes? Uh, of course, with control of circumstances, we start to discover that restrictions are really hard to enforce in online assessment. So, mm -hmm. you know, in that case, the first conversation I would have with somebody isn't about how can we stop them from bringing in their notes? It's about is a closed book exam where they can't use notes really what you're wanting to use to assess here? Mm -hmm. So it is getting to that territory of universities' responsibilities to make sure that these things happen um, for the environment of assessment as well for me. So in thinking further about the attempt to stop e-cheating then, do you have any responses to the roles that assessment design and technology might play? In the past, people a lot talked about assessment, authentic assessment being a determinant um, uh, for assessment to be cheated, but do you, do you have any responses to that sort of area? This is a really difficult one. We want assessment design to be the solution. I want assessment design to be the solution so much because a lot of my previous work was in assessment design and mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of good things we can do to make assessment better. Unfortunately, some of the sort of knee-jerk reactions that happened initially around, well, we'll ban essays and then students won't be able to use essay mills. They didn't work because, you know, the essay mills, that's just a name for them. They can produce whatever type of assessment you want. So a similar sort of argument happened with authentic assessment that, you know, if we shift to authentic assessment, then cheating won't be possible. I, I don't really buy that. And there's evidence against that. Uh, you know, some of Kath Ellis's work, for instance, has shown that these sites do produce authentic assessment tasks, not just a hudge that's based on evidence of the work that they make. So on that side of things, there's no sort of silver bullet um, mm. solution to that. But we can also say that there's a lot of mistakes you can make in assessment design that make cheating more likely, more of a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if mistakes can make cheating more likely, then surely we can make cheating less likely by not making those mistakes. Um, so I think the interaction between assessment design and cheating is complex. Um, mm. You also asked about technology in there. Yeah, what about technology? Yeah, and I think with technology, we can 
we could use technology to try and detect some types of cheating and see if they've happened. Uh, I think there's a reasonable argument that could be made that the fall in copy-paste plagiarism, for instance, is associated with the rise in text matching tools. And I think we may see a similar sort of thing with certain types of cheating that are happening now and the rise in other products like remote proctoring, uh, lockdown browsers, um, stylometrics tools, those those sorts of things. The evidence is not there yet for those, though. Mm. As technology advances and it's really accelerated now through COVID especially, and we have more access to data and more sophisticated technologies are becoming readily available. And people are, I think, increasingly more aware and fearful of the surveillance culture. And this is not just assessment, but happening all across our lives with technology in general. So in the context of assessment, then, what sort of thing do you think we need to be mindful of especially in the context of assessment being it's part of learning for students. Yeah. So I, I think the arguments around surveillance are legitimate. We do need to go into them. They're things that students do appear concerned about. We've had, you know, some student petitions and protests mm-hmm. and those sorts of things about some of the surveillance tools that have been in use. I think those are all real. In the book, I kind of put forward a view that, yes, they are real, but they're probably something that we're going to have to live with, so it'll be about harm minimisation. So that's that's the, the perspective I come from. So we need to have, you know, good regulation around the surveillance here. Um, We need to have institutions really informing students about this, about, you know, the ways in which your data is going to be collected, how we're going to use it. Uh, I wrote a piece recently for our higher education regulator, TEXA, about remote proctored exams. And one of the things that I put forward there, which was based on consultation, was that students should be able to opt out of Mm -hmm. these sorts of surveillance things and have some sort of alternative. Now, the alternative might not be something they're going to like. So if it's, say, a remote proctored exam, the alternative might be travelling to an exam centre or somewhere and doing it face-to-face. And I've been talking to a lot of students lately about remote proctored exams, and a lot of them are actually really liking the convenience and would choose that, despite some misgivings about surveillance. Um, So, yeah, I... I know there's some quite hardline anti-surveillance people out there and I thank them for their work and their pushing because I think it's really valuable to have people push that perspective because they find a whole bunch of new new problems that we haven't thought about. But I don't share that sort of, that idea that surveillance is always unacceptable in education. I think sometimes it might be the right tool for the job. But I, yeah. in, in, these, in these debates, I end up with no friends because I'm finding that it's quite polarised. You're not between... taking a side, Phil. <laughs> I know. And if you don't take a side, sometimes you just get hammered from both sides. Yeah. And I wanted about, this is the argument that I hear often, it's that tipping point between the benefits 
for learning and students learning versus surveillance or breach of privacy where does that lie and and I think your argument is kind of lying around these two ideas so did you want to talk a little further about that yeah yeah so I firstly I think we need a bunch of evidence that we don't currently have so we need a bunch of evidence about the potential and real harms of surveillance because I think a lot of it's just been talk so far Mm. Um, and we need evidence about the potential benefits of the surveillance because again a lot of that's talk and a lot of that's us needing to trust the promises of vendors Um, and you know in the book I talk about my efforts with various types of vendors to do research studies and the fact that usually they're not that interested Um, I, I still hold out hope that I will have a, a great research partnership with one of them in the future. I do. And so you I talk about we, that in a book as well. It's courageous. It's call to action for the vendors and the industry. Yeah, yeah, we, we need that. Mm. And it's without those two things, we're kind of in a, a state where we're dealing with a, a lot of a, opinion about it, which is, is fine in assessment I know more broadly we don't have the evidence that we would like to have about everything to make the decisions we want but this is so high stakes I think we really do need that sort of cooperation Um, one other sort of angle on this is that we've sort of with exams our default approach with exams has historically been at the end of every unit course module we're going to have an exam And I think that's a terrible approach. I think we need to zoom out to what matters at the degree program level Mm. and find out the points where we have the key moment of assessment of something and secure that moment. And in the other moments, those should be assessment for learning moments. And we don't need to secure assessment for learning. So the idea that we might have a remote proctored exam in every unit, I hate that. But the idea that we would never have any exams in any units. Well, I I don't like that either. I think we need secure assessment much more infrequently than we currently have, but we need it to be more secure. Yeah, and I'm fearlessly um, nodding here. Is that ideal programmatic assessment with the signature assessment to be secured? And we need to be carefully designing for that. It's a good message here as well. So can we talk a little bit about the penalties? And we kind of started to talk about the responsibility that um, universities hold. And in chapter two, you talk about penalties. So penalties for cheating need to be appropriate, you say. Penalties that fit the circumstances need to be considered. So what does that actually look like? And how do we face the consequence of cheating with the penalties that university might consider? Yeah, this is a really difficult one. Um, So we need some sort of schedule that has the the penalties. So it it can't be something arbitrary that's decided in the moment. So we, we need a schedule that says it. I think the first thing that we have to do if we have a moment of cheating that we're we're sure about to the extent that we need to be sure uh, which at Deakin is on the balance of probabilities. It's not beyond reasonable doubt. 
so, so what that means is we think it's more likely than not that cheating has occurred rather than we're sure cheating mm. has occurred. Um, the first thing we need to do is not accredit the person for the learning outcomes that they have cheated on. And I think that's, that's probably a nice middle ground we can all meet on. People mm -hmm. shouldn't get credit for things they haven't done. Um, and in my view, that's not actually punishment. There's, there's no punishment there. If the role of assessment is to see what people have done and from that infer what they're capable of, we can't do that from cheated work. So there's that sort of first layer. You don't get the credit if you didn't do it. The, the next layer, the role of that is kind of murky in a sort of punishment slash deterrence sort of state. Mm. And I think for that, we need to look at how effective our detection approaches are and balance them off against the sort of punishment. Because I think at the moment, higher education doesn't have very good detection approaches. So the deterrence of the, the penalties needs to be quite large to kind of counteract that. Um, in a first instance of cheating that could be seen as, you know, a lack of understanding of what to do. Um, you know, we see that so often in, you know, poor referencing or copy pasting where people sincerely didn't know that that wasn't okay. I don't think we need a big punishment side of things. I think we need to focus on the educative. In more egregious cheating, um, and there I'd put contract cheating, you know, paying someone else to do the work for you, for example, um, I think that needs to be quite severe. And Australian universities have been quite severe with that. So, you know, going as far as revoking degrees from people who have graduated, which mm. is about as severe a thing that we can do. Um, I also think we need to have ways for students to come to us without us detecting them, come to us and say, hey, I've got a problem, I've done this thing, and we can work with them on another way. And I would really recommend some of the work that the University of New South Wales have done on that. Um, a culture of they, disclosure in your book. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, they, they have, I believe it's called something like courageous conversations with students who mm. come to them and just admit, hey, I, I've done this, I need help. We, we need more of that sort of thing as well as better detection methods. Mm. So it's a range of strategies to deal with a range of uh, e-cheating. Yeah, it is, it is. And it needs to be public and out there and students need to be able to see it and understand it as well rather than have it be hidden under 10 links of policy documents. Yeah, it can be quite complex often, the policy um procedures and um, language, especially in that. So uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your last chapter. And as a practitioner myself, I really enjoyed this chapter. Um, it's kind of written in a slightly different tone and it's almost like call to action as you start by saying e-cheating is here to stay. So what can we do about it? And so you might like to frame your answer to my next questions around this chapter, but what would you say to teachers out there listening to this, especially novice ones, I think, in thinking about assessment design, assessment security and technology, I think, to some extent, 
especially in online or remote contexts, any advice on how they might best tackle on this issue? So you're right, that, that last chapter is really, it's a plea to people about stuff that you could actually do. I, yeah, and I, I think it, it's great in an academic book to have that. The, mm. here's, here's my personal view. I've given you the, the high-end um, uh, perspective that's couched in lots of references and whatever, but this is, this is what you've got to do. So I guess in the, the chapter, I sort of focus on five key things. I'm not going to go into all of those in detail. Um, I guess one of them is around focusing on assessment security and academic integrity at the same time. So I really feel like too often the debate gets polarised and people just do one at the exclusion of the other. So we might have lots of really good developmental workshops with students about academic integrity, which is great, but then assume that that's just going to stop the cheating, which it, it won't. Or we might do the reverse. We might just punish everyone that we catch cheating and do nothing to develop that sort of capability and attitude and ethical stance towards cheating. So I, I think there's a really important balance to do that. So have a look at what you currently do. Do you do anything in your unit around academic integrity? Do you do anything to build that culture? And you know, some of that could be as simple as talking about it when you are teaching, talking about integrity and ethics. Because we know that you know, things like professional ethical behaviour and academic integrity are linked to each other. So what do you do there? What do you do to secure your assessment against cheating? And how do you know that that actually works? So <clears throat> I guess that sort of slight audit. Mm. Um, another one of the big things that I push in that chapter is that sort of perfect is the enemy of good. Mm. We I really like that one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because I think we... Um, in trying to stop cheating, the conversations sometimes go, I've got this great way of stopping cheating. And then I'll go, well, yeah, that the evidence suggests that maybe that doesn't work or on its own, that won't do everything. And then it could lead to this real defeatist thing of, oh, well, if that doesn't work, then what, what can I do? The thing is no single solution is going to fix it and we'll never get to the perfection that people want. So we've got to accept that we will make small incremental improvements over time that are going to make things better. Now, since the book was published, I've read a really interesting chapter by, I think it's Rundle, Curtis and Claire, that uses what's called a Swiss cheese model for academic integrity. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't know, like this, with COVID, there's been a lot of these sort of Swiss cheese models, which is you know, to deal with the pandemic, masks on their own are not going to work and social distancing on its own is not going to work. And, you know, it, there is no single layer that's going to stop COVID. But if we get enough of these layers of Swiss cheese together, then we'll do a pretty good job of stopping it most of the time. Mm. And the Rundle, Curtis and Claire chapter takes the same approach but to, you know, what I'm calling assessment security. So layers of things together are going to help us improve. And I really want us to think that way rather than looking for the one solution. 
That's a great analogy with the COVID layers of approaches that you need to put on to tackle this issue. Um, and also what I like about that principle is that it really builds on that narrative about educational endeavor is iterative and it's an ongoing um, commitment to uh, learning and teaching. So yeah, it's a really good message there. Um, thank you, Phil. I think these are really good conversations and um, really unpacking your latest book about assessment security. And I have another question about the writing of this book. Um, and um, you talked about this in different forums, I think. Um, you using Pomodoro to produce this book in seven weeks. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to ask you about that, how you tackled the writing of this book in such a focused and effective way. Yeah, so I, I did write this book in seven weeks. However, I thought about this book for oh, maybe 18 months or even two years prior to starting to write it. Oh, good. Um, and it was the thinking so a lot of thinking, a lot of just messy notes, whatever, you know, a Google Doc on my phone that I just add ideas to as I go that enabled me to be able to do the writing part then because I'd done a lot of the thinking. So mm. I guess that that's, you know, that was a big thing. Um, and the other, you know, the other big enabler was I had seven weeks that I negotiated with various people to be able to write the book. So there were people who did some of my other things in life for those seven weeks and that's yeah when people go into that monk like you know single focus mode it's important to remember the the things that enable that so I had some great people helping and enabling me to do that um but then it was a case of setting those pomodoros so that's 25 minutes of work sit down do the 25 minutes have five minutes off sit down again for 25 minutes, five minutes off. And in those 25 minutes, the only thing I was allowed to do was write. I wasn't allowed to do anything else. I wasn't allowed to go read relevant research or do editing of the book. It was just sit down and do generative writing on the book. And it worked. And I am really happy <laughs> that it worked. I'm going to try and do that again for my for my next book. The, the key thing is just getting rid of those distractions for me was mm. so powerful. So, you know, that even went down to having noise cancelling headphones on with white noise and just blasting that. So I'm purely focused on the one thing. Do you even have unproductive days? Because I can't <laughs> imagine you being unproductive at all. I, my productivity is actually very sporadic. Uh, I, I would say in my academic life, it's going to sound horrible, but most days are unproductive days, but some days are very productive days. And those productive days enable me to, you know, produce what I, what I produce. Um, so I'll, I'll sit down and I'll write a journal article in a day or two, but I couldn't do that five days a week. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I read a great book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, and it sort of helped me to understand how is it that people get those those chunks of time in life to do writing, and how do they 
change themselves so they're, they're able to do that. But I'm really interested in, yeah, how do I do that? So at the moment, if you would look at my diary, I actually have some days that have a, a few hours blocked off and that time just says deep work in it. And in that time, I have to go back and work in that kind of monk-like mode, only one focus, turn the email off, disappear from the world. Yeah, and that's a really important message. And I think the approach here too, because academia increasingly is a complex space with competing priorities. And I see my colleagues being pulled into lots of different things. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, if you had a message for those out there who are striving to produce research work, um, but with the recognition of there are lots of lots of different types of work that academics are now um, asked to do. Um, you know, you hear a lot about WAM issues, um, competing priorities and so forth. Um, and for you to write this book in such a way um, that has a huge impact as a researcher, um, what sort of message you, would you like to share with those academics who are really uh, trying to publish more and do more research? Yeah, I think it's it's a really hard time to be an academic. Um, so that's the, the first thing I would really acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've worked in teaching intensive, uh, teaching and research and research early roles over my career. And I'm really lucky to be in a, a predominantly research only role at the moment, which is, is great. So I know I have a special position. So the things that I say are not going to be transferable to everybody. Um, but yeah, with those caveats said, I think it's about carving out a little bit of time and that may only be 25 minutes where you are focused on just the one thing. Um, so I, I think that's that's part of it. Another one is to always have a paper that you're working on that's your no excuses paper. So it's the paper that you never have an excuse. You're never waiting on anybody else. You're not waiting on data. You're not waiting on some approval. You can write this. So when you do get that time, if you can't work on that collaborative piece that you're working on with somebody, work on this one. So mm -hmm. always have the no excuses paper because it's too often when it comes time to write, people have a lot of excuses. So that's, But when you are writing, write. Don't do other things. Don't write and edit at the same time. Um, there's, a, there's also a, a bit of a shift in the way that you think about research and some people are going to hate this, but think about research in terms of the outputs. Because if the research doesn't end up in those outputs, you might have had impact on a community of people or something, and that, that is commendable. But the broader world out there doesn't know about what you've done. So change the thinking in terms of research really towards an output focus so that you're not just doing a lot of stuff. If you've got a bunch of empirical data already and you're going out and getting new empirical data, but you haven't written up this stuff, ask yourself, why, why am I doing that? And if you keep on doing that, maybe there's, maybe there's a problem or something. I've been in stages where I do that far too much and I don't write enough. And yeah, so I've tried to focus on do the outputs. Really good questions to guide us thinking as well. Um, and one term that comes to my mind when 
I was to, if I was to describe you as a researcher, a very strategic researcher. <laughs> um, you're always thinking about that impact and an outcome of the why you're doing X, Y, and Z research or work. And that's really inspiring. So thank you, Phil. Um, so I think I've asked all the questions I wanted to ask you, but I wondered if you'd like to add anything to wrap up this conversation. Um, because I've just done a book, I'll do the, the plug thing. Um, just that if you're listening to this and you're at Deakin and you've enjoyed what I've said, there's a copy of the ebook in the library and it's a good copy and you can download chapter PDFs. So I know that really matters to me when I'm reading ebooks. I hate the online things. Um, and if you're not at Deakin and you're listening to it, then maybe ask your librarian to get a copy so you too can, can do that. Great plug. Well, you are full of wisdom and great advice, Phil. So thank you so much once again for coming in and talk with us about your book and your latest research. Thanks so much, Chi. I've really enjoyed it.